Hi, John. Can you hear me? Eric, yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, great. great. Can you see me? I can, yeah. I changed my view the other day because I was sick of looking at myself. So I actually, let me. I understand. <laughs> I Yeah, Zoom fatigue is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can't see myself, but if you can see me, that's good. Okay. Yeah, I can. Yeah. And I'm, I'm planning just to use the audio, so no big deal. Okay, cool. Right. Um, should I just keep speaking into, I'm going to close the window because the bugs are kind of loud. Yeah. Um, the audio is okay. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good on my end. Um, okay. Yeah. Are you getting any feedback from when you talk? No, not yet. Not so far anyway. Yeah. Okay. Great. Awesome. Where are you? Um, where are you based? I'm sorry, I'm late. I forgot about. This. Oh, no problem. You're very busy, so. <laughs> um, we're all busy. Yeah, I'm based in southeast Missouri. Um, okay. Yeah, very small, rural, very conservative town and church. Um, I go to Trinity United Methodist. Um. Yeah. So that provides a little bit of context. Was there anything else you wanted to know about my church or our audience? Um, I guess, how does your podcast fit into like the rest of your life? What What's your full-time oh, vocation? Sure. Yeah, I teach English at a university. Um, okay. Yeah, cool. in another, in a larger, but still very rural conservative town, um, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, right on the Mississippi. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what's the school? Southeast Missouri State University. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's not a religious school at all no no it's okay. a public university yeah yeah mm -hmm. <clears throat> that's great um yeah yeah part of me is jealous i mean i just love reading and writing and um teaching lit i taught literature and i taught high school literature for two years um and uh there's a lot i didn't like about teaching high school but the ability to teach and, and teach texts is pretty fun for me yeah. um you enjoy it? I do. Yeah. yeah. It's, I've been teaching for 13 years or so now and mm -hmm. been at Southeast for over 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So, and my, my wife and I both grew up in Southeast Missouri. Um, we live in her hometown. And so we're pretty rooted to the area and to the university. There aren't a lot of options for teaching at the university level in our area. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> But I enjoy it. And then um, can you just tell me a little bit about the podcast? Like, when did you start it? Um, yeah, uh, we started it, let's see, right when the pandemic started. <laughs> okay. uh, right before the pandemic started, my pastor at the time, uh, he wanted to start a podcast for the church. He knew I was really into podcasts, so he asked me yeah. if I would do it. And then, and so we were, you know, going to uh, do it anyway. And then when the pandemic happened and everything went online for a few months, it really turbocharged the urgency and we launched it very quickly. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since with some breaks. Um, I'm actually just, this will be probably my first episode after a fairly long hiatus. Um, and, you know, we've, yeah, so it it's for the church. But, okay. 
and most a lot of the listeners are in my church, but I've uh-huh. also had listeners from across the country and even from other countries. Um, and it's kind of ebbed and flowed, you know, with different episodes and different things going on. And and to be really honest with you, you know, I would it would be awesome if you I, I would reference this podcast in your own work just to drive some of your audience to the podcast and maybe discover it and discover some of the other episodes we've done with like Kristen Cobes DeMay and Beth Allison Barr and uh, Jared Bias, you know, and some other people that they might be interested in, you know, hearing from. I was, I was actually just emailing with Kristen about something that I'm just writing for my day job. So that's funny. You mentioned her. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. So generous with her time. I don't know where she finds the time to be on so many podcasts and do so many things she she is very very generous i've noticed that as well um all right well i'm i'm ready to jump in whenever you are what's the runtime on on your podcast usually um usually about an hour i mean we can go a little shorter a little longer whatever uh my schedule today is pretty flexible and wide open i know you're you know kelly mentioned that you've been slammed recently so i I want to be respectful of your time. So you can, you tell me, you know, what would work well for you? Um, you know, I can probably go till about 11. Um, I've got a couple of things I've got to get done in the next couple hours. Um, sure. But I can go till 11. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you on, are you on Apple podcast, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're on Apple podcasts and Spotify um, and a few others, but those are maybe the, the two most common things that people wouldn't be familiar with um and and when the episode goes live if you'd like i can email you or kelly and and let you know you know the episode's live at this link on these platforms and um, yeah because i publish it through anchor so it's always live on anchor's website but then it gets syndicated to or distributed to apple podcasts and spotify and a few other places too yeah Got it. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. Um, so John, could you introduce yourself to your listeners? Just, you know, what you do for a living, because it's really awesome and and fascinating, but also, you know, a little bit of your faith background. Sure, Eric. Um, so I think for about 20, let's see, 22 years, I've been a political journalist, although I didn't start out covering politics. I I've been a journalist for 22 years. Um, and I've, I've written mostly for, um, four outlets over that time. Um, the last nine years have been for Yahoo news. Um, previous to that, I was at the Huffington post, uh, for three and a half years. Um, and then before that I was with the daily caller. I helped launch that website, which was Tucker Carlson's website. That was back in 2000. 10 and 11. I was there for about a year and a half. And then before that, I was at the Washington Times newspaper, um, an actual print newspaper, um, (laughs) for about eight years, starting in 2001. Um, And I would say since 2006, I've been covering politics. Um, And I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Maryland. Um, about 30 minutes north of the city and uh, am the the child of uh, Jesus people, people who became 
born again evangelical Christians in the 70s. Uh, I was raised in uh, an evangelical church um, that was uh, pastored by a guy named C.J. Mahaney and then also by Joshua Harris. And my book, Testimony, talks about my upbringing, um, my connections with some of those people, my parents' connections with some of those people, and my journey over the previous over the last you know two decades uh i would say out of fundamentalist thinking and and uh a fundamentalist view of religious faith okay great yeah and and testimony i have to say is just fantastic um you know i you. yeah it is a, a really great um interweaving of your personal story and memoir and also a lot of the political and religious trends that you've observed and been, you know, very in some cases very close to over the over the last couple of decades. So in your book, you talk a lot about growing up inside an evangelical bubble, um, and you describe it as overemphasizing emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and I and this kind of becomes a a recurring theme throughout the book. But what do you mean by that overemphasizing emotion? Yeah. Um, what What is interesting to me about um, evangelical Christianity is that there are sort of a, a never ending, you know, variety of different streams and nuanced versions of it. And so, you know, there's often a lot of common characteristics between people's experiences, but there's also often, you know, depending on where they're coming from, things that are unique. Um, and so, um, but I think there, there are elements of evangelicalism that were not as focused on emotion and, and remain that way today. Um, probably, you know, when I think of who would be in that group, um, you know, chime in here if, if you want to add any or if you think I'm slightly off, but I would say Southern Baptists seem to be less focused on emotion than the way I was raised, as well as, um, you know, conservative Presbyterians and, and Calvinists. And, uh, and I'll come back to the Calvinist thing in a minute. But, mm -hmm. you know, my parents, as I mentioned, became Christians in the 70s. And we're more influenced by the charismatic stream of evangelicalism. Um, and I'll just note as an aside that my book traces sort of the path uh, or the arc over the last 20, 30 years of two leaders from our church when I was growing up um, who I think reflect, you know, there are, there's more than two poles inside evangelicalism but two of the big poles inside evangelicalism, one being the more emotionalist faith and one being the more doctrinal, doctrinally focused faith. Um, but my experience growing up was very influenced by the charismatic tradition, which has elements of Pentecostalism. Um, you know, if you were to look at the, the whole stream of evangelicalism, you could look at assemblies of God, 
Um, a lot of non-denominational churches are just like this, where the emphasis is on um, is on just a personal relationship with Jesus. That's pretty common, but a big focus of the weekly church experience is the Sunday service and maybe other services throughout the week where there's a lot of focus on the singing portion of the service, a lot of emphasis on having an authentic I'm not actually here to critique that per se. I think there's elements of that that are um, potentially quite healthy and, and I think can be very powerful in people's lives. Um, I think what I'm critiquing in my book is when that becomes the focus of the faith practice. Um, and that was certainly my experience because um, there are a lot of downstream effects of that. Um, I think two I would just name off the top of my head would be first, I think it um, de-emphasizes the role and actually discourages the importance of critical thinking and um, using your your brain and loving God with all your mind. And then I think secondly, it pushes people more towards a type of bubble experience in terms of their whole life, um, their relationships, their experiences, how they invest their time and pushes people away from uh, living in proximity to people who are different and living in proximity to people who are hurting um, and, and spending capital, relational capital, financial capital, other forms of capital in your life on actually being the hands and feet of Christ to those people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And, you know, I appreciate the careful, um, framing of that, you know, it's, this isn't necessarily a universal thing. Um, you know, I, I talk on this podcast a fair amount of be, about evangelicalism because I found that it seems to really permeate and influence a lot of American Christianity in general, you know, even, you know, more mainline denominations and certainly non-denominational churches. Um, you know, you mentioned like the SBC uh, being less focused on emotion than like charismatic traditions like Pentecostalism. Um, but what I really took away from your book was, you know, I think you described it at one point as like a hamster wheel of, you know, we we measure people's faithfulness by their emotional response or expressiveness, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, you know, the goal of the service and the church becomes producing that kind of emotional response and expression. And like you said, that can then ex uh, push out be in the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, and I would, I, in my observation and experience, even those less you know, emotionally expressive traditions like Southern Baptist still will talk a lot about being on fire for Christ and mm, yeah, you know, right. kind of frame it that way. Um, yeah. So I think that that's a good analysis and a good point that, you know, if we can overemphasize emotion sometimes, but what would be maybe a better, more balanced emphasis? Or what have you found in your experience and your faith to be a better, more balanced approach? Yeah, I mean, before I get to that, I, I just wanted to mention one other mm. 
element of evangelicalism that I that I've noticed pushes people away from uh you know walking the path of of Christ's call to um love our neighbor. Um it's one that I probably didn't articulate as fully in the book because I think it's been one that has become more clear to me over the past year or so. Um there may be some of it some of this in the book, but if I could give an example of what what I think I'm talking about here before I name it, it would be um see you at the poll. Uh the old um I don't know, maybe they probably still do it actually, where, where people probably at the start of school, but you know, often in high school, will have a day they set aside where they say, let's all show up, all the Christians at this public high school, or doesn't have to be public, you know, let's go to the flagpole and and pray around the flag um, at a certain time in the morning. Um, setting aside the uh the interesting choice there of praying around the flag um you know and 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 sort of interesting um you know questions that that raises about marriage of faith and country um it is this emphasis on taking a public stand for the faith that i have found to be really interesting an interesting thread to pull on um there is a lot tied up in this sense of the way to be a faithful Christian is to stand up for the faith in some kind of public way that usually involves uh, some sort of ridicule. Um, I, I think there's some uh, way in which this is actually a way of distracting ourselves from a much more costly form of living out the Christian faith that involves real sacrifice in an ongoing way, not at one point in time for all time, you know, but in an ongoing daily way of living our lives in a way that's embedded with the needs of others. That's a high bar. I do write in the book that I'm nowhere near figuring out how to do this faithfully and sustainably. But I think that's more the goal of the faith rather than some sort of Hollywoodized version of, um, you know, accompanied by a soundtrack of some dramatic moment of standing up for the faith. Yeah. Um, and I think actually that, that that dynamic often can motivate people to do things that are somewhat um, provocative, actually, in hopes of being criticized or ridiculed um yeah. which is not at all really the point of christianity yeah yeah I think, um, well go ahead yeah go ahead go ahead go ahead well uh there were a lot of really great quotes in your book and passages in the book um but there was one in particular that i i wanted to ask about uh this is in the chapter called radicalized and you described you know really for lack of a better you know term catching on fire you know being really passionate in your faith um in part from attending some really emotionally driven uh worship services and events um yeah you know and you and you write this really interesting paragraph for years i interpreted the events of 1997 through the well-worn grooves of storytelling that are passed down from church-going generation to generation 
I understood, understood my story as simply miraculous. Now I cannot help but notice the ways in which even before I went to the celebration conference, the net was closing in around me, pulled by human beings who were being paid to make sure my peers and I got more involved in the church. Um, and I wrote a note, please say more. <laughs> I, I'm really fascinated to hear more of that reflection and analysis. Are you looking for more in terms of detail of what was happening or more sort of or philosophical reflection on that? Well, I think in terms of that net closing in around you, pulled by people being paid to get you to be more mm -hmm. involved in church, you know, I'm just fascinated by that the ways in which, you know, we might look back on events and look, see them very differently. And in this case, you know, you're seeing that what seemed miraculous at the time was maybe more manufactured yeah. or, maybe I, or maybe I'm reading something no. to that. No, you're not reading into that. I think what you're uh, sensing there is an attempt to become more aware of reality without becoming cynical. Um, and I think to become cynical would be an overcorrection. Um, but the correction that's needed is the way that oftentimes in religious cultures, we choose or are taught um, not to look too closely at the material physical causes of things because we want to build our faith up by interpreting everything through a spiritual lens and um actually loving god with all your mind um yeah. i think it is um choosing to often stick your head in the sand. I think it's what leads to a lot of problems with religious cultures where there's often a tendency to sweep things under the rug rather than dealing with them forthrightly and balancing the needs for forgiveness with the needs for justice and for um you know, things to be made right. Um, and I think we're often pushed in the direction of being afraid of what it might reveal if we do ask questions about our faith and the origins of our faith and the questions of, the great questions of, you know, ultimate reality. Um, my, I will say my feeling has always been that if, you know, that God is big enough for these questions and the truth is big enough for these questions. And, um, you know, if God is real, then he can, he can handle these questions. I, I think at the end of the day, Eric, I would I have a desire to live in reality and in truth. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think it's unfortunate the ways in which religious cultures that um, talk a lot about 
loving truth often really do discourage its pursuit. Um, and that's based on fear. And I understand that, but I am calling that out and, and saying, I think it's, it's wrong to do that. Yeah. And what do you think the fear is based in? Um, that we could be wrong and that we've built our identities and our worlds and our choices and our finances around things that um, might be somewhat wrong or completely wrong or, you know, halfway wrong. Yeah. There's uh, the notion of sunk costs, you know, when uh, I think that's a business term, but when you've, when you've poured a lot of resources into something, the tendency is to keep pushing forward because to change course would invoke a lot of regret and uh, embarrassment. And um, that's something we find psychically hard to, to handle. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a great segue into one of my next questions. Um, a major theme throughout the book is, what you describe as the Gnosticism of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. um, and so could you tell our listeners, you know, what is Gnosticism and how do you think it appears in evangelicalism? Sure. Gnosticism is um, a, an early church uh, heresy that I'm not an expert on. <laughs> My layman's understanding of it is that it, um, de-emphasize the value and importance of the physical material world um, and overemphasized the value and importance of the spiritual world. Um, there are other elements of it, like the emphasis on secret knowledge, um, which I think also plays a role in evangelicalism. But when I was using the term, I was mostly referring to the fact that, um, again, so much of the way we thought and interpreted our lives and, and everything around us was hyper-spiritualized, over-spiritualized, combined with a very emotional focus. And, um, and so there's actually a book that just came out by Josh Harris's ex-wife, Shannon Harris, where she has some very strong passages that I think put a little meat on the bones of what it feels like to live a life that is where your where your physical body is actually not a part of your faith practice um and there was i think the other element here is that um evangelicalism has always been somewhat skeptical if not outright hostile to tradition and history and i think the jesus movement in the 70s really added a lot of intensity to that to that um that direction because it was a reaction against the what they saw as sort of a staid and stale and dead religion of the mainline denominations and catholicism so there was an even more forceful rejection of history and tradition um and so all of those things left us sort of just unrooted from 
having a place in the grand scheme of history, unrooted in place and time, um, and unrooted in our physical bodies and our physical location, we were kind of these ethereal um, beings sort of floating through time and space, mostly focused on an individual relationship with Jesus, rather than seeing ourselves as embodied beings living in a specific time and place and understanding that time and place and all that that entails as having a lot to do with informing us of what our faith should look like and how we should live it out. It's a much more specified, focused view of faith than sort of this universal, um, vague sense. It's also more communal, you know, like we are living in this time and place or with in connection with the people that we are in, that connected to. And that tells us a lot about what our commitments should be. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you mentioning, you know, that the um, early church heresy of Gnosticism, um, it had that dualism between the material and the spiritual, but also emphasized that this attaining of secret knowledge, you know, usually from, you know, from my layman's understanding from a spiritual leader of some kind or a guru for, for lack of a better yes. description. That's right. Um, and so it, I've heard this said before, um, I did, can't remember exactly who I heard it, heard say it, but it really struck, it really rang true to me that American Christianity has a lot of Gnostic heresy in it, <laughs> because we, we've kind of reduced being a Christian to, well, you mentally agree, right? It, you know, with these set of propositions, right? And then with your, if that's the basis of your faith, well, then, yeah, you're going to have a lot of fear of what if you're wrong, right. um, which is that's going exactly to drive right. a lot of what you're describing here in this talk and in this conversation and in the book testimony. Um, so kind of segueing but, from that. No, that's that's very well said, Eric. And I think it it also ties into the ways in which the focus is often on taking a stand for a certain set of beliefs rather than taking a stand for people yeah mm -hmm. absolutely and so that's probably a good segue into talking about your family conflict um and if this is too personal you know you know feel free to say so but i know, wrote about it that's true yeah it's in the book <laughs> and i really admire actually how honest you are in the book about your family conflict over some of your political differences. And, you know, so I wanted to start by, uh, I wanted to ask a couple different questions about that. But first, you know, how is your current relationship with your parents and your siblings? Uh, currently, things are, are, uh, are actually pretty good. Um, I do think that the ability to sort of catch our breath um, over the last two and a half, three years um, from not having a president who is constantly trying to divide Americans, um, you know, as part of his strategy. <laughs> I think that's been helpful. Um, but I also think this book has been helpful, um, at least with my parents. Um, my parents, my dad read it and we had a 
there. We had a couple conversations about it, lengthy ones. And I, yeah, there's a lot I could say about that, but I think, um, I think he, you know, he, I felt like he heard me and that had been one of my struggles is that I don't, I didn't feel like my dad was listening. I hadn't felt like he was listening to me. Um, and we were able to, I was able to articulate just that I, my, my desire is not to, um, really have the focus of our relationship be political disagreements. Um, my desire was to have him, what was, what was tricky is that I, I wanted my father to, you know, uh, take an interest in my career and cheer me on. Um, and, you know, so much of what I was doing professionally was probably seen as a criticism of of him personally like he probably perceived my work as a criticism of him personally because he was a trump he voted for trump um and i'm you know at times i'm sure there there was you know in some of my emails like personal critique of him but so it was it was tricky and complicated but I was able to, we were able to come to a place where I think he understood, like, I just, even if you disagree, I, I, I would love to know that you're proud of me and proud of what I'm doing. Um, I think that's most kids desire. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's been a very positive outcome of this whole process. Um, and uh, I do think that one of the big questions I have about the next year um, or so, you know, 14 months or whatever it is till the next election is how Americans are going to handle um, what's coming our way. Like it's, it's happening. It's, it's going to heat up right now. Um, and I think so many people feel, you know, traumatized. <laughs> by the last two elections. And I do think a lot of us have, you know, learned some lessons from that. And I think we're gonna do our best to try to avoid the mistakes that we all made. I know I am. Um, you know, whether that impacts the political outcomes, I have no idea, but I just know that there's a lot of scar tissue built up and I do think that can be helpful going forward. Yeah, how so? Well, I'll just speak for myself. I mean, I'm I'm pretty committed to resisting the urge to, you know, post that Instagram message about politics that is sort of critical of people, you know, hoping that that one person in, in my feed reads it and changes their mind. Um, I'm, I'm pretty committed to not engaging in political debate on Facebook or over text message or over email. I mean, I just don't, I think I, I think I thought back in 2016 that, that we, things were so beyond the pale that you could persuade people, but I've, I've realized that that's, that was naive. And so I think I'm, 
just going to be a lot more restrained in my personal communication. Um, and, you know, Lori, Lori Ferguson Wilbert, um, her substack is, is sayable. She had a nice piece the other day about, you know, continuing to, to stand up for what we believe, but not vilifying those who disagree and trying to, to do it better next time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's really holding on, holding on to the importance of love. Excellent. Yeah. I've had a very similar journey. I have to say, <laughs> um, I've, you know, I agree, you know, in, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, it, for some reason, I thought that the dialogue could be persuasive or influential. And I, over time realized like, no, like there's, you know, too much, uh, identity wrapped up in this too much psychology wrapped up. Um, right. it's just not going to, to move the needle in any appreciable way. Um, right. and just cause a lot of conflict for no, to no purpose. Yeah. Um, and that actually, I, I happen to be working on an article right now, uh, to submit to an academic journal where I'm talking about uh, one of my main scholarly interests, uh, which is how schema theory from the field of psychology can help us understand rhetoric or practice rhetoric better. Um, and so, you know, schema being just an organized conceptual framework or a mental framework. And as I was reading your book and, and some of the really, uh, some of the passages where you're talking about messages between you and your father in particular, it really jumped out at me, like the schema that your your father has is filtering, you know, so much of what you're saying to him. Uh, so like, yeah. you, would, you know, I don't have the page or the passage pulled up right in front of me. And rather than take the time to find it, I'll try to, to do justice to it from memory. But, you know, you described saying like, okay, he Trump just said these things or did these things. You know, this is a threat to, to democracy. You know, how can you not see this? And I, I, his response, if I remember correctly, was basically, well, yeah, that wasn't good, but it's not too dissimilar from the left. And, you know, people are just trying to delegitimize his presidency. And so, like, you lament that he couldn't just have an unequivocal uh, denouncement of this. And, mm. and as I'm reading this passage, you know, I'm thinking about the article I'm working on right now, and I'm thinking about schema theory, and it just seems so clear to me, well, he has these schema for Trump, for the left, for, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's filtering everything coming to him from John yeah. and other sources. So I wanted to bounce that off of you and see, you know, if you thought that was a fair description, not just of your dad, but of other people you've talked to over the years as a political correspondent. Yeah, I mean, there, there's... Uh... There's no question that people's sort of story that they are living, you know, it's sometimes people say people are telling themselves a story, but it's not a conscious thing. It's, it's, it's a deep, it's a deep thing. It's a, you know, it's a deep story that they, the, the power of it is that um, none of us uh, think that critically that often about the stories that we are telling ourselves because we're not consciously telling them to ourselves we're embedded in them yeah and um and i think one of the deep things i'm trying to say in this book is that 
the really important work is pulling back and trying to get some perspective on our own un sort of subconscious assumptions um you know quite frankly that's something that most people don't do um it's hard work it takes time a lot of people don't have time or inclination to do it but i think i think it's a more healthy pursuit than um trying to fix um or fight against symptoms you know i'm very much uh a go to the source type of person um but i think even in 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 analyzing you know what people's schemas are i think there's a a temptation to think well if we sort of dismantle their schema and explain it to them they will then they'll be persuaded. And I think your point about identity a minute ago was very key. A lot of this is emotional, psychological, tied to our egos. Um, and um, it's really hard to dislodge that stuff. I also want to make sure that people don't hear what I'm not saying, which is that uh, I'm not saying just give up. Um, I'm not saying don't stand up for what you believe. I think a lot of it is just there's a time and place. And there are ways to be effective. And there are ways to potentially make the problem worse. So this is somewhat of a pragmatic point that I'm making, some, somewhat of a strategic point that I'm making. Um, if you have a vocation or a profession in which you are able to speak on these matters, you should do so, absolutely, and do so forcefully at times. But I will just mention something that I said to uh, Andrew Whitehead, who wrote a book called American Idolatry. We were speaking the other day about the book. Uh, it's an analysis and a critique of Christian nationalism. Andrew quite admirably really calls Christians to embrace that <laughs> the, the way of Christ that puts power aside and seeks solidarity and common cause with the weak um, and the disenfranchised. Um, you know, when I said earlier, don't stand up for beliefs, stand up for people the people I'm really talking about are those people, the people who are powerless and suffering. Um, but what I said to Andrew is, uh, I think this this way of this way of of living um, probably needs a sales pitch at times too. It can't all be, let's all just go and suffer. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that's what. Christ is necessarily calling us to either. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Christ calls us to live in fullness of life. So again, there are these dualities, these um, these poles. On one hand, you might have the prosperity gospel. On the other hand, you might have, you know, people who renounce all worldly possessions and, you know, just live a life of poverty. And, you know, the, the 
certain orders of the Catholic uh, priesthood do that, the Jesuits, who were quite amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for many of us, you know, another way of thinking of this is the two poles would be martyrdom on one side and seduction on the other. You know, on the martyrdom side, we're, we're going so far in the direction of self-renunciation and sacrifice that we're unable to actually live our lives. We're not joyful. We're not physically healthy. We're not mentally healthy. We end up being of no use. We end up probably hurting ourselves and hurting others. I think that's okay. About realistic or selfish. Um, we don't think about, you know, should we be doing more? Right. And so this is where I think the Holy Spirit is needed is to help us discern how to how to do this day by day. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, the schema or non-conscious, because that is where they can be, that's where they derive a lot of their powers. We don't even realize that we have these frameworks that are filtering information as it comes to us and affecting how we interpret it and understand it and then integrate it. Um, and, and then identity does, and emotion does get wrapped up in it. Um, I actually, you know, I would distinguish, I try to distinguish between like a common point of knowledge versus a schema based on that emotional resonance that the schema has. Um, and so, you know, I, like you said, you know, we can't just try to deconstruct someone's schema. Um, I advocate in terms of uh, my writing and rhetoric scholarship, I advocate trying to create new schema for the topic at hand um, so that you're influencing people on that level um, as opposed to trying to deconstruct or, you know, bang your head into the wall of an existing one. Um, and so we just have, you know, a couple minutes uh, left and I really appreciate your time. You know, I know, you know, how busy you are. Um, and so I want to give you a chance to, you know, share with our audience, you know, where they can find testimony, where they can find your other writing, your own podcast uh, that I came across and, and so that they can, you know, get more, more of this awesome content because, you know, testimony was really uh, a great read for me. I really enjoyed it and mm. thought you presented a very good history of the last couple decades of American Christianity um, and, and how it's intertwined with politics and social issues as well so um yeah please share where people can find the book where they can find your writing for yahoo news and your podcast yeah thanks eric mm -hmm. um it's nice to hear you say that um it's been a couple months since the book came out now um five months almost i think and uh it'll be interesting to see you know in the years, I've always been very curious, you know, what will come of the book over the next 10 years. I mean, the initial release, it's a lot of activity and a lot of podcasts. I think I've, I've done over 50 podcasts now. Um, and uh, just a lot of attention and, you know, um, ego and 
all that. Um, but uh, now that things are a little more settled, um, it's really not, you know, it. <laughs> I don't have as many conversations now. So when I do, and I hear somebody like you say that, it's almost more meaningful because it's not just like in that initial period of talking about it all the time. And it's also nice to talk about it um, at some distance now. Um, things have kind of settled. It's, you know, I have a little perspective. But uh, pretty much everything you mentioned from the Substack to where is where you can probably find, I, I do a Substack uh, every Friday. Um, I've been doing one every Friday this year. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to sustain that. Um, and that's where a lot of stuff will 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 pop on you know this this top this subject matter um religion politics the intersection of the two um you know i'm writing about some of that for yahoo news but a lot you know a lot of times it's just more straightforward news copy um i am going to write something i think in the next day or two on why it matters that to to donors and some voters that tim scott is not married i think it's an interesting question like why does that why is that a political um, question? So, you know, if you're looking for my Yahoo stuff, just Google Yahoo News and John Ward and my author page will pop up. Everything else virtually is at my author website, which is johnwardwrites.org. So that's J-O-N-W-A-R-D-W-R-I-T-E-S.org. And that has the Substack podcast um, and everything related to this book testimony, as well as to my first book, which was just a political history about the 1980. Democratic primary between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter, which I'm also very proud of that book as well. Absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you again, John, for your time and everybody go get testimony. Uh, it's a it's a really engaging, fast read uh, with a lot of really great insights and experience. So, uh, well, John, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And um, I also, you know, I write about politics and religion, but on medium.com, just kind of, you know, uh, similar to Substack. And um, so if you ever find yourself like needing a guest Substack post or like a podcast guest and you're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, let me know. I'd be, you know, happy to, to step in if you, you know, have a last minute need or something like that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I really appreciate your time and the connection. Uh, it's, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Eric. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Mm -hmm.